Good morning, everybody. So, how about those Rangers? That's a lot of fun, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's that's just that's just fun. Nothing like a seven-game series, winning the seventh game for your team wins. I mean, that's just it doesn't get it doesn't get better, especially when the other team's the Astros. So. I'm sorry if there's Astro fans here, but you know, some of us are not Astros fans. We're Rangers fans. Some of us are hardly fans much of the time, but you know, like postseason, yeah, baby, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. Four more, four more wins. That's what we need. Okay, so I'm glad all of y'all are here on this Tuesday. Hello, streamers. Hope y'all are doing great. Um, let's see. The only announcement I have is that we will be gone Tuesday, November 14th. I'm pretty sure it's the 14th. Patty and I are going to be away for a week, so we're going to be gone the preceding Sunday. Kim Myers is teaching my class at 11 o'clock, so that'll be a hoot, and because um, she's a hoot. <laughs> and um, then we won't have class. I want my Monday and Tuesday classes will meet, but then we get back on Thursday and everything will be back on schedule. So, I think what I would like to do, I've started the podcast already, is to open us up with prayer, and then I'll see if there's anything y'all would like to talk about before we uh, plunge back into the book of Samuel, okay? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. You know, we are Christians and every, everything about our faith centers and circles around Jesus, around Jesus. And um, we, we come to this, these stories in the book of Samuel about David, this idealized king of Israel, um, knowing that you know, God's promise to David is that one from his line, his house, would always sit on the throne of Israel. And so the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, indeed would be Jesus himself. And we are grateful for that, and we're grateful that your Holy Spirit is with us today. Just fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm uh, as we pick up this tale. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do have one other announcement. Next Tuesday is actually Halloween. Am I right about that? October 31st. And so the corner gals who don't sit in the corner anymore, we let them come out of the corner, and they're mostly gone today. But Susie Coburn emailed me and said they would all be gone. But no, so they are going to bring some light, light, Halloween snacks next week. Not meant to be your lunch, but uh, <laughs> meant to acknowledge that it is indeed Halloween. And of course, as always, if anybody else wants to bring something, that's great. And we will uh, have a very spooky time next week, okay, or something like that. I don't know. My wife, understand, my wife, in our home, there is a Halloween tree because we got a Christmas tree a couple of years ago during COVID and we had it up and 
It fit real nicely in the corner and added a nice luster and glow to the living room. And when Christmas ended, we decided we didn't want to take it down. So now Patty rolls from Christmas to Valentine's Day to Easter to Memorial Day with the Patriot Tree through to Labor Day and then a Halloween tree with, with fallish elements and then when that is over we then move into Christmas. Is that right dear? Did I get that whole sequence correct? Yes. She has the photos to prove it if you if you ever want to challenge her on it. Yep, she does. It's the same tree. She just redecorates it. The tree never comes down, you see. That is the key. You know, we don't have to take the tree down and we don't have to put it back up. And, you know, it's a pretty smart move, in my opinion. <laughs> and it still adds a very nice luster and glow to the room. So, <laughs> is there anything y'all would like to talk about today? Don. Early voting started yesterday. Early voting started yesterday. Very important, good constitutional amendments for teachers, retired teachers, and homeowners. I hope you all go out and vote. Okay, so read over the constitutional amendments that are up for a vote and vote. You yes, sir. Can, you can vote three times in Frisco. You can vote three times in Frisco, you know? Yeah. Yeah, in Florida, you can vote five times. Yeah. So, so anything else? Okay, well, I've already opened us up with prayer, and we've taken questions, and I've told you everything I can tell you, so we're going to plunge back in. Now, here is where we are, right? So, um, here's my, that's the map I want. So, this map shows the route David took when he left Jerusalem, right, and abandoned his throne, leaving it for Absalom. One good moment for David in this is that he does not choose to take the Ark of the Covenant. We need to remember that. He could have taken the Ark of the Covenant with him, but he did not. He said, no, it belong, It needs to stay in Jerusalem. And, and that is a, that, that's, a, that's a good David moment right there. Probably different than a lot of other people that would have done, particularly since at the beginning of the book of Samuel, the Israelites take the Ark of the Covenant in a battle, thinking they were like, <coughs> Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and so forth. So all they did was lose the Ark actually in battle in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. So David, obviously Absalom has died. David's troops are victorious. David mourned and mourned and mourned for Absalom. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. And, and Joab, this really a duplicitous murderer is who he is, um, told David that you, he had to whip himself into shape, that, that he was making the troops feel like they had fought for nothing. And he, he needed to pull himself together. And I commented at the time that really that's a talk that I've needed a few of those over the course of my life. And I think most of us probably have. Um, 
it's easy to get lost in your own stuff and not think about what your larger responsibilities are. But now, and so now David is returning and he is returning to reclaim the throne. And remember when he left, he was encountering different people, right? Like Shammai. Shammai was the guy who came out and cursed him and cursed him and threw the rocks at him and said, you've got the blood guilt of Saul on your hands. And we didn't really understand what that was about. There's no way to understand from where we are right now what that was really all about. So on the way back, he is encountering some of these same people. One of them, last week, we saw about his encounter with Shammai. And his, there are two ways he could have encountered Shammai. One was to <laughs> basically throw him into prison or worse for what Shammai did as David was fleeing Jerusalem. But he takes, he takes really God's way. God's way is to temper justice with a large dose of mercy. And so he, he spares Shammai and um, spares his life and resumes his journey back to Jerusalem. And that's basically where we were, right? Do I have that right? I think so. So, the next person that we are going to encounter is Mephibosheth, right? So Mephibosheth is this person that you keep encountering in the book of Samuel, sort of time after time. And remember, when David is fleeing, did he actually encounter Mephibosheth? No, he actually encountered Mephibosheth's um, head steward, his head manager, his trustee, named Ziba. And Ziba told David that Mephibosheth had chosen Absalom. And when David hears that Mephibosheth, to whom he had befriended, told him he could always have a seat at David's table and the rest, um, he gave, told Ziba that he could have all of Mephibosheth's estate, his stuff. As, and um, Recall that Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul, and uh, crippled. Those are all little pieces of the Mephibosheth puzzle. So any thoughts, questions before we have the encounter with Mephibosheth? You can just call him Mr. M if you like. All right, verse 24 of 2 Samuel 19. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king himself, right? The Mephibosheth is going himself. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. So those would all be signs of distress, mourning, grieving. He's not taking care of himself. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? Remember what Ziba said. This is, Ziba is supposedly Mephibosheth's trusted right-hand guy running the estate for, for Ziba. 
Well, Mephibosheth says to David, My lord the king, since I was servant, since I your servant am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. Right? So he's not going to be able to flee with David on foot. He's going to have to get the donkey, climb the donkey, ride the donkey out with David. But Zeba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king, but you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? So what is David left with at this point? What? There we go. How many of you found yourselves in that situation? With your own kids, right? Yes, they come in. No, he did it. No, she did it. No, he did it. Yeah, so <laughs> Zeba says, no, nah, he chose to stay with Absalom. Mephibosheth no, said, no, I was betrayed by Zeba. I couldn't escape town. And then Zeba told you all these lies about me. So what does David do in that event? Well, he does about the only thing he could do. He says, the king said, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. He's not going to get too deep into this. David's got things to take care of. Just You guys just split it. There's plenty. I don't want to hear any more about this. That's how I read it anyway. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Now, that's where it ends that particular encounter, but what does that sound like to you? What does it sound like? Does it not sound like the story of Solomon? Solomon the wise, when the two women come, each claiming to have to be the mother of a, of, of a particular baby, and the king says, just, you know, just cut the baby in half and give each of them half. And then the mother says, the actual mother says, no, 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 give it to her. Right? So, you know, on balance, if I were riding away on my donkey or whatever David is riding, I would give a lot of weight to what Mephibosheth said and probably see Mephibosheth as the truth teller her. And certainly, when David get back, gets back to Jerusalem, he could probably just do some inquiring, ask some of the people who were, who were there about, you know, Mephibosheth and Ziba. But anyway, okay, so now we're going to meet another person for the second time. Barzillai, the Gileadite. Now, Barzillai we met on the, on the way out he was the one who brought, he's a wealthy guy, he's an old guy, and he brought lots and lots of food and drink and all this stuff for David and the troops. So he was supporting them financially and with resources and food and, and everything. That's who Barzillai is. Barzillai the Gileadite also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was very old. 
80 years of age. I say he's just in his prime, baby. I'm still looking forward to getting to my prime. And I don't have that long to go. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. What a gracious invitation to Barzillai. Come with me. You can go to Jerusalem. You can live in the palace. I'll provide for you. And Barzillai answered the king, Ah! Ah! <laughs> Sometimes I have too much fun with this. I don't know. How many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of male and female singers? I think his answer to all those things is no. I'm old. I can't taste anything. I can't hear anything. I'm lucky I can see. I'm lucky I'm still upright, king. <laughs> I'm 80 years old. I'm old as dirt. I'm just telling you, 80 years old today is a lot different than 80 years old in the ancient world. 80 years old today is a lot different than 50 years ago. So, isn't that true? Okay. <laughs> Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance, but why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return, that I may die in my own town, near the tomb of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever you wish. So Barzillai says, look, I have this trusted servant, um, Kimham, you want, you want to give me something, give it to Kimham. Take him back to the palace and do what you can for him. I just really want to go home, get in my, get in my chair, <laughs> kick my feet up, watch the Rangers, and when my day comes, I'll be buried, ne buried next to mom and dad. Yeah, you know, it's not a crazy thing. He doesn't want, he's not, he doesn't want to run a new race. He just, he's, he, we know he's very wealthy, so it's not like he, he's got all the comforts that a person could acquire in the world of 1000 BC, roughly, right? So all the people crossed, the king said, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself, verse 38. The king said, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever you wish, and anything you desire from me, I will do for you. That's quite a pledge from the king, isn't it? Remember, the king holds absolute power. It's not like kings and queens today. It's more like Xi in China or Putin in Russia. These absolute monarchs, absolute dictators who, who hold all the levers of power. 
Verse 39, so all the people crossed the Jordan and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell and Barzillai returned to his home. I've always liked the story of Barzillai. You know, that's just, it's just a real, a real encounter between David and this, this 80-year-old man who has helped David and knows what he would like David to do for him, which is centered upon Kimham. So verse 40, when the king crossed over to Gilgal, okay, the map. Okay, so here's the Jordan River, right? Here's the Dead Sea. Go up that way, you get to the Sea of Galilee, right? So Gilgal is just on the west side of the Jordan River. It's the place where David had gone through when he was fleeing Jerusalem. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him, and all the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had, had taken the king over, meaning escorting him across. This, this verse seems like a throwaway verse, but it's really not a throwaway verse because when we talk about the king being taken over, it is the king being ushered back to his throne. It's not the physical process of carrying him. That's not the emphasis. They're probably not even carrying him. He's probably on some kind of donkey or mule. After class, one of you can explain the difference to me. Okay, a donkey or mule. And, um, but this is how it worked in the ancient world, that returning kings, returning conquerors, visiting kings would show up and they would be ushered. They would be brought into the city by the townspeople. And, and, and that's what's happening with David. It's what happened when Caesar or Caesar's son would go around the Roman Empire and visit various places. They would be met outside the city gates and they would be brought into the city. It is what happens when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It is what will happen when Jesus returns. The metaphor that Paul uses to describe Jesus' return is that we will go and greet him and escort him into this new world, this renewed world that Arthur talks a lot about these days from Revelation 21. So um, in the Greek, there's a word for it. It's a technical word describing this welcoming committee. It's apentasis. So that's what's going on even a thousand years before Jesus. Because the people live, they are the subjects of the king. Now, that's not, subjects is not a word we encounter very much, but it's still the same idea. That's who, that's who kings were. Kings have subjects. We, we, we live in America. We're nobody's subject, right? We're citizens of America, and we elect people to govern this sprawling country, but, but we're nobody's subject. Nobody rules. The words matter. Nobody rules here. Um, they're elected. They have their time in office. But we're citizens, not subjects. And even presidents are just presidents. They're not rulers. 
they have a time in office, but it's not, it's not that let's take up a, it's their time in office, but it's not their reign, R-E-I-G-N. Yes, Charlotte. Back in the days when, well, before Jesus came. Yes. Yes, but not a prophet. So the person, the most notable person who, ran, who rode into Jerusalem was Judas Maccabee. At the, um, basically the, the, the Maccabean recovery of Jerusalem, the temple, which is the, what Hanukkah celebrates. Um, he rode in, right, accumulating around himself those kind of messianic symbols. There may have been others. There were other would-be messiahs before Jesus. Um, the most notable is one named Judas the Galilean who is referenced in the New Testament by um, uh, one of the rabbis, but I don't know if Judas the Galilean tried that. I suspect not because it was he was just a leader of a of a revolt because what was the job description of the messiah in the minds of most Jews in Jesus' day to kick out the pagans and cleanse the temple of the corrupt priests. So rebellion, revolt, that was part and parcel of that. And that's what they expected Jesus to do. And when he doesn't do that, when it's clear he's going to end up impossibly crucified by the Romans, all it means is one thing. He was never a messiah to start with. And, and there would be another messiah named Simon Bar Kokhba about 100 years after Jesus. And I don't know whether he rode into Jerusalem or not, but he did mint coins with his image on one side, the temple on the other, I think those were the two images, but notably year one, year two, year three, because he was ushering in the kingdom of God. You see, year one, year two, year three. And that really worked until the Romans decided they'd have enough of that, and they came in and just cleared the Jews completely out of Judea, Galilee, and all surrounding areas. What year was that? About 135. 136, his name was Simon Bar Kokhba, Rabbi Akiba, was like the lead rabbi who endorsed Simon Bar Kokhba. I say his name was Simeon something, but Bar Kokhba means son of the morning star. I bet if I met him, he had a really, I suspect he had a big ego. That's just my guess. I don't know. But was he Messiah? No. Who was Messiah? Jesus. Did most of his fellow Jews miss it? Yes, sadly, terribly sadly. Paul mourns for that. He grieves over the fact that most of his fellow Jews do not embrace Jesus as Messiah. And I've taught this for so many years. Why don't they? Because the last thing that could happen to a Messiah is to be crucified by the Romans. They were, the Messiahs were supposed to show up in power and in might and in wonder and in glory and kick out the pagans, which means Romans, 
in Jesus' day and cleanse the temple of the corrupt priests. Not end up crucified. You know, I'm just going to keep saying this until I croak because it's just so it's just so fundamental to reading your New Testament well, reading the Gospels well, is to understand what the expectations of the Messiah were. Absolutely, absolutely. If you can get there and really take it in, the Gospels will start to open up for you and you will see, oh gosh, okay, okay. The second piece, as long as I'm on this, chasing this particular rabbit, is that for the Jews of Jesus' day, did the Messiah mean that Jesus was God? No, 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 no. At the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, did any of them think Jesus was God? Was God. No, 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 no. They would come to understand that. But Messiah and God were two completely separate categories. Most of them can't even get to Jesus being Messiah. Maybe none of them until he's resurrected. And when he's resurrected, they begin to understand that he is the Messiah. And then as they reflected upon what he said and what he did, they come to worship him as God. And then being radically monotheistic Jews, radically monotheistic Jews, they came to understand that God, in God's unity, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But nobody in the Gospels, nobody in the days when Jesus is with them, even in the days of the aftermath, do they see that? We'll keep an eye on that when we do the uh, book of Acts and see how much of that do we see. And Because you, you, you have to start at the right place and let these people don't read back into their minds the stuff that's in your mind. Yes. When did it dawn on John and Paul that Jesus was God? I, when did it dawn on... What, when did it... What all we have is the evidence we have. And the evidence we have is that it happens very, very quickly. The, the most... What are the, what are the earliest New Testament writings? The Gospels? No. No. The earliest New Testament writings are Paul's letters. And you see in Paul's letters the emergence of this understanding. And so when does Paul begin to write? Only 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And you already see, you already see then this, there is one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, and so forth. Uh, the, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, Colossians chapter 1. You see this understanding emerge and they worship Jesus as they had, as these radically monotheistic Jews, Paul was a Pharisee, as they had worshipped only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they begin to put this together. Now how long does it take for them to come to sort of the full-blown understanding of 
the Trinity that we repeat in our creeds and so forth. Does that happen overnight? No. That takes, that takes, Wednesday Night Apostles Creed dates back to maybe 200 AD, maybe a little bit before the Nicene Creed. And the form we use goes to like 380 AD. So a group of folks called the Early Church Fathers wrote about this and they wrestled over all this stuff. They're, um, they're also called the Patristics. Here's what's fascinating to me. Our own Reverend Lauren Gerlach is totally into the Patristics, totally into the Early Church Fathers. That is what God has instilled in her heart. To be, to be focused upon. And it's wonderful because in those early centuries, these Jesus people have to, have to come to understand something that seems to be impossible or crazy. But what makes it not impossible or crazy? The resurrection. If, so for me, I'm a fairly simple guy actually. If, if, if a person can come to accept the resurrection of Jesus, that opens the door to all kinds of possibilities because what does the world know? Think, <clears throat> think, what is wrong with me today? I, was, I guess I yelled too much at the TV last night. Think that dead people stay dead because the human experience is what? That dead people stay dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is is the linchpin and but the process it's it's a it's a long one you know John writes his gospel in it's no surprise to me that John's gospel is the last one written I certainly think a late date is appropriate for John's gospel people still argue about it but not that many written maybe 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, written after the other Gospels were written, decades after Paul had died. John writes his Gospel, and what is this Gospel, gospel focused on? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you just see this emergence. But don't take all that stuff and put it back in the head of the followers of Jesus at the time of his ministry, death, and even resurrection. It would, it would come. It would come. When, when Jesus dies on the cross, they all just think that they have sadly, sadly been mistaken. And so the men are all in hiding. The women are coming in grief to the tomb. There was no expectation of one person being resurrected. So they had to deal with that. And that's how Paul ends up saying, well, in 1 Corinthians 15, which is written only 23 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul says, okay, it's like a big harvest. You know what a harvest is, right? Even I know, the city boy knows what a harvest is. So Jesus is the first to be harvested. All the rest will follow. And we live in between. We are living in the middle of the harvest. But there has been one and there will be more. So anyway, 
All of that brought to light from the simple statement all the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over the Jordan River to escort him back into Jerusalem is what the rest of that sentence might say. Okay, so any thoughts or questions about any of that stuff I just, the rabbit I just chased? Was it helpful? Well, we got, we got to talk about these things because most of us are not brought up in churches where these things are ever talked about. I don't even know if, they're, if it's that the staff assumes them or they don't, or they don't know it. That's, that's the thing. I can only look back on the churches I've been part of and nobody told me the simplest things. Yes? Up there, up there. Yardanit is up there where the sea, um, sea of Galilee empties into the Jordan River. One time we went to a place further south that was kind of real muddy and everything. Maybe that was the year we did it with you. There was really no development there. You just kind of went there and you wandered down into this mud and there were Jordanian soldiers on the other side. But the place that is, yes, it's more touristy, but it's just better with groups is up at Yardinit, and that is up where the Sea of Galilee enters into the Jordan River. Okay. All right. So, Mike? So Paul, so Paul is basically in his uh, missions, basically trying to piece together an image, right? A, a corporate type image of what Christ, what, what this is all about. I mean, what we're saying is, you know, when Jesus rode in uh, the Passover, uh, you're right, everybody thought that the image was we had the warrior here. And to me, you know, you, you're bringing this out for me because. To me, I always thought Jesus, but Jesus in the way we believe just blossomed right after the, uh, yep. the resurrection. So, but I've been reading, <laughs> I've been reading. And you know, in Acts, is, it's, it's really an eye-opener. Yeah, Acts, so when we go through Acts, we'll see, we, we will see some of this. You just have to be, when I started this work 20 years ago, I said, okay, my head is filled with lots of <coughs> lots of answers. And I need to take those and I need to put them into a box. And I need to read scripture as best I can afresh with a fresh eye and and read what's actually there. Um, not simply rely on things that I had been told about this and that without really taking the time and putting in the work to actually read it. So that's what we try to do in here. Okay, so thank you, Mike. All right, so back to Samuel. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and they were saying to him, saying to him why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all of his men? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is so closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? 
Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? So now they're fighting over David. This is another one of those signposts to the tension between the northern tribes and the tribe of Judah. It keeps, it keeps blossoming, it keeps blossoming up, it keeps boiling up, you keep, you keep boom, keeps erupting. And that's just what this is. They're now erupting. Well, why do you have more status than we have? Yada, 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 back and forth. Well, verse 43, Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. All right, why ten? Ten tribes. The northern, what will become the kingdom of Israel is the northern kingdom and that will comp be comprised of ten tribes. The tribe of Judah will become the kingdom of Judah comprised of the one tribe of Judah and little bitty tiny Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin, okay? Benjamin has kind of an odd place in all of this, but that's, where, that's what they mean by the ten shares of the king. We, we, the men of Israel, which is, it's really a later way of putting this, because Israel will be the name of the kingdom to come after the death of Solomon, but the writer is using some of that later wording to describe this. Does that make sense? That he, wants the re he wants his readers, which are in a later time, to understand what was happening here. Yeah. We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. Okay, here we go. All that little bit. What's the point of it all? That back and forth. Just think of your kids. That back and forth. What's the point of it? Because the day is coming when they will split. Irrevocably split. Okay, so, anything? Now we're going to meet a person named, well, the name is spelled S-H-E-B-A, -A, which could be pronounced Sheba. Sheba is a province in Arabia, and famously, it had one particular woman who was known in scripture as the Queen of Sheba. My friend Joe Armstrong gave me a little tiny figurine from my desk of the Queen of Sheba. And um, it sat there on my desk looking at me, the little bitty Queen of Sheba. So I am act, just to avoid confusing myself, I'm going to try to call this man Sheba. Okay? He might have pronounced his own name Sheba, but he is not here to tell me. So I'm just going to call him Sheba. If I can. Now a troublemaker. Notice that. A troublemaker. 
named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, meaning from the tribe of Benjamin. It's a small little tribe, but near troublemakers, happened to be there while the Israel, their men are all beckering back and forth like, really kind of like children, I guess. I mean, it's, what is it like? Why do I use the phrase like children? Because they're all part of one family. They're all cousins of one stripe or another. They're all related. They all have the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins. Well, Sheba is there. And he sounded the trumpet, and he shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So now he is trying to throw his lot, and perhaps a lot of the tribe of Benjamin, which doesn't matter much in the scheme of things, but the, the lead, the ten northern tribes that do matter in terms of size and strength and power and money, to rebel against David. So what he is advocating here is another rebellion. We had one by Absalom, and now Sheba wants to lead another one. We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So on this journey, because now he's crossed over, now the Israelite men are leaving, leaving the tribe of Judah, those warriors, to return David to Jerusalem. And again, you can't help but see this foretaste, this signpost of what lies ahead. This, this is flirt, it's not even flirting at this point. This, he's calling them to outright civil war. Right? Outright civil war. That's what kind of rebellion this is. I, that's a little different than Absalom. This, this is the ten northern tribes who have not been happy with David. Um, the bickering in the paragraphs above kind of illustrates some of that unhappiness, I guess. But all the men of Judah deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. Now, you remember the story of the ten concubines? They had left them behind and Absalom went up on the roof in the full sight of Israel and had sex with them all, raped them all. In keeping with what Nathan said would happen because of the violence that David had brought into his own household. So David gets back to Jerusalem. He takes those ten concubines, these second wives of his, and he puts them in a house under guard. He provided for them but he had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Who else is living that kind of life? Still. Who? Tamar. 
Tamar. Remember, Tamar is the name of David's daughter who was raped by Amnon, and then Amnon was murdered by Absalom. So it all, I didn't even bring the family slide anymore, but yeah, yeah, Tamar, Tamar is still living this life, kind of this confined, sort of living a life of the dead. No future, no children, no husbands, just living out their days in confinement. That's who these ten concubines are. Yes. Did the, any of them have children before? No. Oh, we don't know. We're not told anything like that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa. Remember who Amasa is. He's the commander who chose Absalom, but then David encouraged him to come over to David's side. So, Amasa um, has been, is now with David. And the king said to Amasa, remember he promised him you could command all, all, all my troops. The king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. So this commander is to round up all the men of Judah, ask them to come, tell them to come within three days. He's to be there himself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. We're not told why, but he just took longer than the time David had set. And David said to Abishai, Abishai is one of the, he's a brother of Joab, right? David said to Abishai, now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. That's interesting. David is more concerned about this rebellion than he was the rebellion of Absalom. Because Absalom's rebellion had this whole personal content, father, son. It wasn't centered on these tensions between the northern tribes and the tribe of Judah. But that's what Sheba is, ta is, is um, going after exploiting, this tension between the ten northern tribes and the tribe of Judah. And I, so I think David is probably right to have more, to be more concerned in terms of kingly power and military strength to be more concerned about Sheba. So he says to Abishai, take your master's men and pursue him or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty warriors, this band of the best of the best of the best. That's who these, that's who, when you read the Carathites and Pelathites and all the mighty warriors, that's this smaller band of several hundred of David's number one warriors. It's the group that Uriah was part of. 
So take the Carathites, the Pelathites, and all the mighty warriors. And, they, and um, so they all went out under the command of Abishai. They marched off from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, <laughs> Sheba, son of Bichri. So Sheba is heading north. He would head north because? Where are the ten tribes? North. north. It's going to be the northern kingdom. It's going to be the kingdom that's called Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah will be the southern kingdom. Well, while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, I think Gibeon's on the map here. No, it's on another map. Here we go. The rebellion of Sheba. Look, I got a whole map devoted to this. Yeehaw. Okay, so here's Gibeon. Gibeon is just a little ways north of Jerusalem. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, the dagger dropped out of its sheath. You know what's coming, don't you? Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Notice the detail. Oh my gosh, this is betrayal and, and just like a raw just rawness, grabs Amasa by the right, um, by the beard with Joab's right hand to, you know, do the little kiss kiss thing or whatever. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand because he thinks they're allies. They're friends. They're both working for David. And Joab plunged it into his belly and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Whew. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Joab is really putting together some body count, isn't he? Going all the way back to Abner, chapters and chapters ago. Wow. Grabs him by the beard. This is why I don't have a beard. Grabs him by the beard. <laughs> with one hand and just drive the dagger in with the other. Oh, man. Yeah, but I guess he bent down and picked it up and is reaching and, and Amasa doesn't realize. He might have realized what was happening if, if Joab had to go through the motions of drawing the dagger, but he might be able to shield actually just picking this thing up from the ground, holding it by his side, unseen, by Amasa, and then Amasa comes, he grabs him by the beard, and it's all, you know, it's happening very fast. Ryan, right, come here. <coughs> yeah, I know. You can work on those moves when you get home. <sighs> so why does Joab do this? We're not told, we're not told motivations here, are we? Yeah, and, and, and Joab is en envious of 
Amasa, maybe, I mean, you could say he doesn't trust him. I don't know. Doesn't matter. What? He took too long. Yeah, he took too long. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't like being late myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, man. So now Amasa is dead. And Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. So they're all heading north now. Sheba head. Now it's Joab. He's eliminated what? One contender or something. And now, one of Joab's men stood beside Amasa, his body really, and says, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. I mean, this is, this is, this is the commander, right? This is a big guy. This is, this is David's guy. Joab's David's guy, too, but you can have more than one guy. I got lots of guys. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. So the body's laying in the road. The troops don't know what to make of it. They're coming to a halt. They're probably appalled to see what has happened. I'm guessing that many of that Joab has a reputation for being duplicitous. and a murderer, but the blood is there, the body is there, the troops, this is just like, and they're all cousins. You see, they're all cousins. It's not like you're coming upon a body of a Philistine or something, these are cousins. And so this one, this one soldier just basically takes poor Amasa's body, throws it in a field alongside the road, covers it with a garment, Move it out of the eye view of the troops, and on they march. They make their way, they make this band of warriors, makes their way northward. Okay? Wow. So Sheba passed through all of the tribes of Israel to Abel Bet Maaka and through the entire region of the Bichrites who gathered together and followed him. So he's going northward, 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 then all the way, all the way up. Just going all the way up to Abel Bet Baka'a up there. Next, very near what? Dan. Dan is was one of the original tribes. Dan was the, that tribe originally settled on the coastline, but then moved northward. And um, we have been to Dan a couple, the ruins of Dan a couple of times, right, Patty? Yeah, it's the northernmost place to go. It's there's a tell up there. There's some, but it's a hard place to reach. And so when we did it one time, it was um, kind of challenging for some people in the group. One of the most interesting that things that happened as we made our way toward the ruins at Dan. We were going through this kind of like foresty area and we came upon a group of Israeli school kids that were there. 
and they had a protector with them. And the protector was a young teenager. She looked to me, she looked to me like she was 16 with, I don't know, some kind of automatic weapon, I'm guessing, slung over her shoulder. And her job was to help protect these Israeli kids because that is very north. That is up there. Lebanon and all that bad stuff is just, whew, you know, like stand here and you can see it. There are places when Dan where you can actually see the hills of, of Syria and Lebanon right there. It's way north. So that's where this guy is headed. It's remote and it is, but still, part of the allotted lands that God had given the Israelites because Dan is, Dan is one of the tribes. So, verse 15, all the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Bet Maka. I'm going to simplify this for myself. Abel Bet Maka. Okay? They built a siege ramp up to the city. So you have to picture walls, okay, around, because I've, as I've explained many times, in the ancient world, you weren't a city if you didn't have walls. You weren't really even a town. You were just a collection of folks open to the entire world. So if you were going to be a city of any, of any lasting size or importance, you had to have a wall. So, and there were no good ways to overcome a wall in that world, nothing like would happen once you had um, artillery and, and so forth. So they, they get there and they build a siege ramp. A siege ramp is a out of dirt and they build the siege ramp so they can get closer and higher on the city walls. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, not an easy task, a wise woman called from the city, Listen! Listen! Tell Joab to come here. I'm, trying, I'm turning a page. Ah turn page so I can speak to him listen listen tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him so Joab came and she said are you Joab and he said I am and he said listen to what your servant has to say and he says I'm listening she continued long ago they used to say get your answer at Abel and that settled it we are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? And she's right. These are all cousins. This is family fighting family. Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That's not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, his head 
will be thrown to you from the wall. When the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, <laughs> they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it over the wall to Joab. Clunk. Roll, 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 tumble, tumble, tumble. Yeah. Yeah. So he sounded the trumpet, Joab did, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. Because remember, these, this is a time when armies like this came together for a fight, but then when it ended, they all just dispersed. There, was, there weren't like standing armies like we have now with the rise of nation-state. Bad cousin. That one they talked about, you know, over the table every Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Bad Sheba. Oh, yes. The bad Sheba of the family. Uh, I, <laughs> that's not bad, I have to say. <laughs> so Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Now, you, you wonder, like, how does he explain the absence of Amasa? Um, we lost him. I don't know. He took off. He's wandering in the woods out there somewhere. You know him. Is he young, these young guys. Well, I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, rounding up those troops. Last time we saw him, he was heading for Vegas. I don't know where we're going to ever see him again. Yeah, I don't know. But you clearly by now understand Joab. You talk about a Machiavellian kind of warrior and politician willing to do murder in order to get his way. Now if you asked him what would he say? These were all done for the protection of Israel. These were all done, I, what I've been doing is for the protection of David. I did David's dirty work with Uriah. Everything I've done. This Amasa guy, he's not trustworthy. But he took it all into his own hands. Is, is David informed? Has David been informed? To your knowledge? No. Right? Was David informed, you all may not remember this, was David informed of the, de of the murder of Abner? No. I mean, he knows Abner, but that it was Joab, no. So, so David's, I think for the writer, the writer is striving to, in some way, keep David's hands clean in some of this. But personally, I don't see how David doesn't see Joab for who he is and Maybe Joab is that kind of guy kings in the ancient world needed. I don't know. Joab know oh yeah, because Joab is the one that David said, you know, take Uriah, put him right up there next to the city wall, and then when he takes a step forward, y'all take a hundred steps back and leave him exposed there, and Uriah is killed. Yep. So. Now Joab was over Israel's entire army. He, 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 Amasa's not there. There's nobody else to share the authority with, the responsibility with. 
the glory with Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites. Now, Benaiah is a person that you need to, like, maybe mark, because we will hear a lot more about Benaiah in the coming weeks. All right? But he is part of that inner, that inner circle, the inner circle of warriors. There's an inner circle of about 30, and then there is a larger circle of, say, maybe 400 or so, of David's most trusted warriors. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Hmm. That's another way of the ancient world, right? That's what happened. Every, 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 every culture around the globe, this is not just an ancient Near Eastern thing or a European thing or an African thing, it was a Chinese thing and in, in the Indus Valley thing and the whole business. It was just part of the ancient world because they didn't have much in the way of machinery or anything to do any work. So you know, most of it was done by people and cultures would use, and civilizations would often use captured warriors in that in that role. So this guy is in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahulad, was recorder. Sheva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the, the Jerite was David's priest. Okay. So that's just a little taste of like the book of Chronicles which lists all these people who are in different offices and things. Okay, so I don't want to start chapter 21. Now let me tell you where we are. Where we are right now with the putting down of Sheba's rebellion, that brings to a close the story of David in the book of Samuel, in this sort of chronological telling. So we've had all this long chronological thing, blah, 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 all the way through. That ends right here. The next chapters in at the end of the book of Samuel, they're all appendices. They're all listing things, they're talking about something, a story that happened earlier and fills in some blanks, but they're like appendices added at the end of the book. And the story of David himself will pick up at the beginning of the book of Kings. And I think we will, when we finish the appendices, we will go into Kings, just to the point where David is dead. You're probably going to want to go on from the stories of David to the stories of Solomon and then on we go, but we're going to, we'll save that for another time because if you don't, if you don't stop, it, it gets a little relentless, I guess. No? <laughs> Plus, I already promised to do the book of Acts. So we'll do, a, how about we do, we make this agreement. We will do the book of Acts and then we'll come back to Kings. How's that? Does that sound good? Okay. Okay. All right. So is there anything that y'all would like to talk about before we <coughs> depart today? Friday night, go Rangers. Friday night, go Rangers. Whoa. Friday night, go Reedy High School. Friday night, go Reedy High School. 
spoken like a true grandmother. Anything? Well, y'all have been very, very wonderful um, through this whole journey through Samuel. We're not done. We got the appendices added at the back of the book, and we're going to finish it up. But, but still, it, it's been great. And I hope it has opened your eyes to the importance, really, of trying to get deeper into these stories and connect the stories together so you can see God at work and you can see what happens when God is ignored, right? Because early in David's story, he's going to God about everything. How much of that do we have now? Not much. Does Joab ever go to God for guidance? Not that I can see, you know. So it's, it's easy to slide into no longer inquiring of the Lord, but let's pray that we don't slide into that ourselves. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, impress upon us and on our hearts the importance of coming to you in all things, praying to you for things that we need or desire, praying that our hearts would be shaped so that they would align evermore with your will for us, um, how we should live, what is good and what is pleasing to you so that we can offer praise and thanksgiving to you. In all these ways, um, help us not put you in a Sunday to Sunday box or a Sunday to Tuesday to Sunday box, but indeed we live in front of you um, every moment, every hour of every day. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.